Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is the psychoanalyst and author, Darian Leader. Darian's the author of many successful books about the human mind, including The New Black, What is Madness, and his new one, Is It Ever Just Sex? That's right, we're going to talk a lot about sex on this episode. Darian is an expert who has a real down-to-earth clarity about the way he explains his ideas on the subject. Traditionally, shrinks seem to think that we are all carrying around mad, animalistic sexual desires that were only held back and controlled by society and good manners. But in his new book, Darian suggests there's far more to sex than simple physical desires, and he delves into the mental and emotional factors that surround what schoolboys of the 80s like me used to call having it off. There's some pretty wild stuff discussed in this episode, and I absolutely bloody love discussing it. I hope you enjoy listening. Darian, welcome to The Reset. Hi, Sam. Good to meet you. You're a Lacanian psychoanalyst. Is that right? So yeah, that's it. Uh, tell, tell us a bit about what that means. So Jacques Lacan was a French psychoanalyst and psychiatrist who was working from the sort of 1930s till the, the late 70s, early 80s. And what he did, he sort of reread Freud and other analysts and worked out a, a way of practicing and a way of thinking about how people manage, how people cope in their lives, how people manage to function, paying particular attention to language, how we're formed by what we hear as children, what we what we're told by our parents, what we overhear, what we read between the lines. And he thought the unconscious is largely made up of those things that are subliminally and sometimes much more directly transmitted to us. And so the work of analysis is in part trying to clarify what those messages are that we've received in our childhood and to try and reposition ourselves in relation to them. He also had a lot of, you know, quite complicated ideas about different kinds of ways in which people develop in their childhoods, how how they relate to their parents, how there's very often a kind of unconscious masochism in people that 
they're desperate to get rid of some aspect of their behavior that's troubling them or causes them suffering. But he thought that in many cases, not all, but many cases, there's a sort of unconscious satisfaction in the way that we suffer. And that's why we repeat things. And so he developed various ways to try to dislodge that, to, to rethink why we repeat things and to find ways around, you know, the, the sources of our suffering. Why did that appeal to you? Well, at the time, I went over to Paris to do my training. And before that, I did a lot of research in the different psychoanalytic traditions and different psychotherapy traditions. This was in the, the mid-1980s. And it seemed to me at the time the most scientific, the most robust way of working. It seemed that the most, really a way of, of thinking about human beings that recognise their complexity. And I know this is something that, that you're sensitive to in, in your own work and to see it in your, the way you interview people, that you can't define people by one single aim. It's not that someone goes through life just wanting one thing, but we can want two totally incompatible things at the same time. That there's a lot of contradiction and complexity and conflict in human beings. Mm. And the Lacanian way seemed at the time to be a really good way of recognising that, recognising how complicated people are, how we want contradictory things at the same time and how we can find a way out of that. Uh, your new book is um, called Is It Ever Just Sex? And um, which is a great title. We'll get on to why he called it that. But sex, when you talk about our old fashioned or cliched ways in which, you know, psychoanalysts are portrayed, I've, I said in my book, like, you know, before I ever went to therapy, probably my main fears when I knew nothing about it were that I would be uh, sat on a couch and there are two things that I thought I'd be asked about my parents and sex. And worst of all, the cliche is, oh, no, they're going to try to establish that I fancy my mum. Um, but, you know, I, I've heard you say that actually asking too many intrusive questions about sex is now a bit of a, a, a subconscious issue for people in your line of work because you think, oh, I don't want to... I don't want to fulfil people's cliched expectations. That's right. That's right. I mean, things have changed a lot. But some of the early analysts, you know, the early 20th century, would ask people very direct questions about their sexuality and their sexual practices. But nowadays, very, very few people do that unless they're actually sex therapists or working in, in a related field. So if someone comes to a session and says you know they had a sexual encounter the previous night we might well ask you know tell us about it what did you feel what was it like um what were you thinking about what were you feeling all this but we're not going to say what what positions did you do where did you touch the other person where mm. didn't you touch them because that would be weird and intrusive and it would obviously make people you know paranoid if, if they think every aspect of their private life is going to be examined mm. in such a harsh way so we don't ask those questions which is great. It allows the person to talk about what they want to talk about, what they feel is important. But on the other hand, the folks that do ask that kind of question, like the sex therapists and people that do research into sexuality, have found out a lot of amazing stuff that mm. most analysts, and certainly myself, were just not aware of. So what I tried to do in the book was to bring those two fields together, to bring together what I learned from my practice, which is limited, and what other people learn who ask the more direct questions. And so there's a lot of 
information, a lot of very distinct aspects of historical and contemporary sexuality that can be linked to the therapies today, which I think you know is very helpful, not just in terms of understanding how people work, but it can also be very helpful therapeutically. So to be clear, like a sex therapist today would be someone who was working with a, a client who, you know, actually had an issue, a specific issue around sex, their sex yeah, life or yeah, their yeah, sexual yeah, tastes right. or, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. In your in what you do, you know, you're not necessarily speaking to people who specifically feel as if they've got an issue around sex. However, yeah. insight to their sex life or their ideas or feelings about sex is useful and revealing yeah of course. with regards yeah. other areas of their of their inner yeah. life yeah. right yeah of course. of course so if you yeah. so if you don't ask them about so you might not say if i was sitting with you you might not ask me what position or what uh, any of the details about the sex i've had the night before but if i told you anyway would that that would be useful information to you yeah, and it would become part of the conversation, mm. of course. But what's interesting is that perhaps because of the the way that culturally analysts are always supposed to be obsessed with sex, mm. in a way that makes us even less likely to ask about it. So yeah. maybe we ask less and less the kind of questions that were asked you know, 100 years ago, whereas the therapists that do ask that kind of question are learning a lot of stuff that, sadly one not learning about in our field so it's it's really interesting to put to put all that together and see what emerges from that occasionally someone will come to psychotherapy specifically with a sexual problem but it's quite quite rare mm. so is it ever just sex what what do you mean by that uh, question in your as your title so a lot of people use that kind of vocabulary when they talk about sex or say Oh, it was just sex. It didn't mean anything. And the more you hear that, and you hear it a lot, the more you realise that actually doesn't that suggest that meaning is quite important to the whole issue of sexuality. And when people talk about sexual relationships, the highs and lows, the heartaches and the pleasures that they might experience, you find really quite pervasively that meaning and emotion which is obviously linked to meaning are central to the whole business now when you look at the scientific studies of sex or pornography they tend to ignore those questions of meaning so in, in a way the scientific studies and the pornography share the same approach that they see sex as a kind of physical operation that doesn't involve meaning mm. yet I would imagine that most people, if not everyone, that's engaged in some kind of sexual life will recognise how important meaning is to to the whole thing and at every level. Mm. I, uh, I I sort of grew up in a sort of um in a sort of a laddish culture. And I even worked on things like lad mags when I was in my 20s. And even before that, growing up, I was always surrounded in a sort of a Jack the Lad kind of culture in which sex was often referred to almost, you had to refer to it as if it was meaningless. You had to refer to it as in the sense of it being conquest, in a, in a sense of it being entirely just hedonistic fun, 
right yeah. and 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 there was and and in that era in the 90s as well there was sort of a lot of uh, women began to speak about it in the same way and it, that just seemed to be the prevailing way in which sex was thought and spoken about and yet inside i never really felt about it that way i always felt actually sex is a big a massive deal it's not a small deal it's a huge deal that's how i always thought about it. and i think loads of people did but we're going along with this other way yeah, of thinking and and speaking about it and now i sort of think you know the world that my kids are growing up in where pornography is so prevalent that must be even more extreme so in what way is that tangled up in you know what people call the mental health crisis that we now live in and and the amount of anxiety we feel and and issues with self-esteem and so forth yeah i mean the things certainly changed a lot in some respects since the mid 90s there's the whole you know questioning around gender and identity and sex roles that people take or, or, or not the lad culture is still you know very present in many parts of society absolutely but i think you know more and more young people have a more sophisticated vocabulary to talk about sex thanks in part to education programs in schools but we've got to remember that sex starts out in life. Our first encounters with it are as something that is deemed wrong or bad or in between the lines, something that can't be said really, even in our, you know, enlightened liberal times. You know, parents tend to tell children what not to do with their body rather than what to do. You know, they don't encourage their children to masturbate, for example. Mm-hmm. They tend to turn questions about sex into questions about reproduction or questions about love. And although that might have some benefits, it also has some pitfalls. And it means that children are always on the lookout for what isn't being said directly. And there's a lovely example of that in that Monty Python film, The Meaning of Life, where in their sex education class, the teacher and his wife actually have sex in front of the class, (laughs) and they're all looking out of the window. Yeah. They're interested because <laughs> they everyone knows that if something is said directly and clearly, that isn't what it's really about. Yeah, it, it's something that has to be teased out, learned through you know what w- what you don't quite understand, what's opaque, what you can't quite grasp. So there'll always be that dimension. So however good sex education programs are, there'll always be that margin of what isn't communicated, and that's where often the peer group steps in you know, cultural pressures about how you should behave, what you should do, what you shouldn't do, with who, and so on. So there'll always be a lot of pressures for young people. Today, with the internet, with, you know, porn being so much more available to youngsters, I think what's interesting is that, you know, we think because there's so much of it there, it's perhaps isn't really going to have any negative effects. And there's the long, very conservative tradition of, you know, anti-porn campaigners that no one really wants to be associated with today. And yeah, at the same time, we often meet people, you know, in, in practice clinically who have been totally traumatized by stuff on the web that nothing has prepared them for and is extremely disturbing. You know, there's, there's if you look at the kind of main searches on, the, on things like Pornhub, they nearly always involve forbidden, illegal, illicit activities that that break familial boundaries. And you could say, well, that's just what porn is. It's about 
representing forbidden things and that's why people get turned on but at the same time there's much more incest porn today than there used to be that's readily available for young people and a lot of them are you know very very disturbed by this i'm not suggesting that you know all the stuff has to be sanitized I think the, the perspective to take is perhaps to recognise that any encounter with sexuality as one grows up is going to be traumatic, that, that sexuality is something that is stronger than we are. It overpowers us, it possesses us. So there'll always be some traumatic dimension to sexuality, but that doesn't mean that we can't recognise particular problems today in the way, for example, that young people encounter certain kinds of pornography. So you're not so you're saying people want to distance themselves from that conservative tradition. I would I've always considered myself or like to think of myself as like you know as opposed to the idea of conservatism with a big or a small c as as I'm able to be. And yet I you know pornography is something that really concerns me and I think that all the things you're saying are like you know pornography does present a a two-dimensional and often toxic portrayal of what sex and sexuality is. And that I can't see any good coming from it at all. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, you sound, I'm, I'm surprised, but, but maybe I'm misreading it that you sound, you know, fairly relaxed about the prevalence of it on the whole. Uh, is it a matter of us sort of preparing young people our children more for what it is they might encounter and how they might interpret it rather than trying to outlaw uh, it completely yeah yeah no I, i'm not in favor of any kind of outlawing i mean i think that w what's interesting is that there are lots and lots of efforts in the last 20 years to to redo pornography so it's less toxic what we can call parity porn where there's more equality where there's less violence, where there's more, you know, representations yeah. of content, all, all these things are obviously of great importance. But what you you don't find, as far as I know, is you don't find scenarios where someone says, oh, not now or not you. In mm -hmm. other words, where people take their prior attachment seriously, because in real life, people choose to have sex or not to have sex, depending on their loyalties and their attachments. So you might choose not to be with someone if you have a pre-existing commitment or, or you might side, decide to, to do so again, but always within the context of loyalties, attachments or lack of attachments. So what would be perhaps more radical than the kind of current efforts to produce a new kind of porn would be a pornography where the characters sometimes decline sex and say, you know, not now, not you, I'd rather not. Mm, mm. Might not be, it might, it might be a pretty short porno then. <laughs> or, or a very long porno. <laughs> yeah, yeah, meet, just sitting around until waiting. Until they meet someone that they're more comfortable to be with. Yeah. What is it, how, how should we be speaking, you know, what would be a, a more effective way for us to speak to or communicate about sex and sexuality to our children? I mean, it's a difficult question because the very fact that it comes from a parent or comes from a school will mean that it'll be able to have certain effects, but also it will not be able to have other effects. Because, you know, 
if if something sexual is transmitted by a parent, you're not really brought up to hear that kind of stuff. You know, the last thing you want is for your parents to start talking about sex to you if you're mm. a kid. So it's always been a problem for, you know, the, at least the last you know, 120 years when people have been discussing this kind of thing. How, how do you talk about, you know, sexuality to kids? I think it's important to recognise that there'll always be an unpredictable, traumatic dimension to it. There's no perfect way. There's no mm-hmm. entirely healthy way to do it. It's always going to be difficult. It's always going to have problems. There's no ideal way to do it. And of course, you know, kids turn to learn more about sex, not from their parents, but from their peer group. And there, of course, you've got, you know, fictions, myths, maybe some truths, you know, a lot of misogyny, a lot of, you know, disguised or not so disguised forms of hatred, exclusion, all the things you get in in peer groups with adolescent kids. And that will no doubt have effects on sexuality. It's, It's why the sexuality of youngsters is usually quite different from that of older people. Uh, What about culturally? Is it different from, you know, here in the West or even here in Britain? Is this the idea of us being prudish and uh, uptight about this thing in this country true, do you think? Or is this just an issue like globally? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, the British have always been prudish, but, and this has been noted by people on the continent for, for more than 150 years, almost 200 years now, journalists and writers on the continent in France and Germany and the Netherlands for all that time have been amazed at the fact that British media includes so much detail about sex that just wouldn't appear in the media there. So if, let's say, there's a story about a sexual assault, Mm. if it's covered in, let's say, a newspaper like Le Monde in France, it'll say the allegation or the conviction, but it won't give you the details of what happened. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
in the scene, whereas the British papers will. So mm. there's this extraordinary contradiction that's been there for a long time and probably dates from a practice in this country that other countries didn't have called crime cons. Mm. This is a thing that started in the 18th century where newspapers would be specially printed with details of the the uh, the alleged goings-on behind divorce cases. So mm. there'd be lots and lots of details of people's sexual practices. There's a kind of salacious literature. These things would appear, you know, every week, and people would read them, gossip about them, talk about them. So there's this long tradition of publishing publicly salacious details of people's sexual lives in this country, which we don't have so much in the history of other countries. So maybe that's culturally been a part of it. Why do you but think is, that is, is? Do you think that's as a result of our prudishness, though? So we become extra excited about having details like that revealed, whereas, you know, laid back Mediterranean countries can just shrug and see it as just being sort of a, a little bit infantile to get so excited about the details. But I guess it's um, it's a question of what makes those details so important to some people. Is that proportional to the prudishness in the rest of culture? Or do you see it the other way around? Is the prudishness in the rest of culture proportional to the mm. presence of all the salacious details, the excitement? So I'm, I'm not sure what the right way to read that is, but it has always been noted this kind of contradiction in British culture between the sort of the, the apparent prudishness and the, you know, the salaciousness in the media. But also in terms of sexual practice, I mean, this country was well known, much more so than other European countries, as being a centre of child prostitution in the past. People would come here from other countries to access, you know, brothels that only um, dealt with, you know, child prostitution. And there have been over the years, you know, many areas of London, like Marylebone and St John's Wood, which were specifically seen as areas for illicit sexual activity. So there's a long history of sex here, which is perhaps less known than other aspects of our the national history. Here. My dad lives in St John's Wood, and I never knew that. And now, no, um, no. now there's a lot of questions have been raised in my mind about his decision to move well. there. When did you mean it? So this is in the 1930s. If in oh, the 1930s okay. you were a single woman and you said you lived in St John's Wood, that might strongly have implied at the time that you were being kept by a married man. Oh, really? Yeah, That's that was the kind of cultural connotation in the 1930s of a single woman living in St John's Wood. And before that, Marylebone was a centre of prostitution. 13,000 oh. prostitutes in Marylebone at the end of the 19th century, according to some of the statistics. Wow. Um, I want to ask you about a story right at the very start of your book about a city trader who set himself goals every month. Um, yeah. and, and if he didn't hit them, he would always respond in the same way. And part of that would be to meet a stranger via an app and go and have kind of emotionless, functional uh, yeah. se sex. And uh, I was really, I, I was interested in that, uh, as you know, from my perspective as a recovering addict, um, because reading it, I know you go on to analyse it in in a in a number of different ways. To me, when I just read it, I thought, well, yeah, that kind of 
it's not something I've done, but it sort of seems to make sense to me in terms of distracting, numbing, sort of oblivion, doing something that's mindless and just sensory. It's same as same as how I might have used drugs or alcohol at one point in my life. But also the things I guess it was trying to combat were like maybe uh, shame or sense of failure, which are two of the big, because this is mainly about men and mental health, this podcast, two of the biggest themes that seem to come up again and again and again uh, is shame and failure. And those seem to be the, yeah. the, the big troubling feelings for men from all different backgrounds. Um, mm. But tell us a bit. I mean, that was how I responded to that story. It was actually really powerful to me. Tell us a bit about, you know, why you chose that story to open yeah. the book. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question as well. The, um, I chose that to open the book because it seemed such a clear example of sex not being the result of some kind of, you know, reproductive instinct. It wasn't something, you know, that, that seemed to be kind of programmed into human life. But it seemed much more like, you know, as you said, a way to numb another feeling, mm. a kind of self-medicating activity. Mm. And it showed very clearly that what seems to be sex isn't just sex. You know, when, when the guy was in a way compelled to have those sexual encounters, he was obviously doing it as a way of treating, of self-medicating pain that was linked to another area of his life. Mm. And so if we then take that as a starting point, you realise that sex, although sometimes it might be linked to some the wish to reproduce or sometimes linked to a kind of pursuit of pleasure or excitement, Generally, it's much more complicated, and it does have that quality of trying to block out other emotions. And that's something that we find not just around sex itself, but also within sex, because there are lots and lots of practices when people actually do have sex that aim to numb other aspects of that experience. It's something I talk about um, in the last bit of the book, the way people touch each other, what actually happens in the concrete reality, the second-by-second second reality of sex, a lot of things are going on which are there to dull sensitivity in other areas of one's body or one's mental experience. And when you then kind of put that in perspective and look at what arousal is, out of you know one um, very important early study, out of the 77 sources of sexual arousal, they found that only 13 of those could be conventionally classified as sexual. For example, seeing another human being that you were attracted to. Most of the other causes were linked to shame, fear, pain, concern, dread, worry. So it's extraordinary. When, when you actually take a step back, you see that maybe most of the time, you know, this is this isn't, you know, great, great news for people who are, you know, so-called sex positive, but it suggests that most of the time when people do sex, it's not such a pleasure-focused activity, and rather it's a way of treating a lot of other complex emotions, things that we might need to avoid or we don't want to think through. And it's interesting to note that a lot of the words used for sex to to fuck, to ream, to diddle, to swive, the, all the historical words, 
they mean at the same time to have sex and they also mean to cheat as uh, if like you're, you're, you're just making a narrow escape from some kind of calamity that you've yeah. managed to have sex and you've avoided something really bad from happening and presumably yeah. that is part of what it's all about that's really interesting it made me think of um you know there was a there was a film wasn't there a david cronenberg film called crash about you know people uh, i mean you'll you'll know loads about this but it was always fascinating to me that this this phenomena of people who find themselves in car crashes trapped inside and they start to masturbate or if there's two of them yeah. they might try to have sex and yeah. that that sort of ties in with what you're saying i suppose isn't it it's like a release and a distraction from another sort of pain or fear yeah and it, it, this is a really interesting question and there's a lot of fascinating research in it and in the book i actually quote the case of someone who had their first orgasm when they were in a car trapped in a car after an accident and i guess there's a the question there that should we see the sexual arousal the orgasm as a way of you know finding a solution to another very painful situation mm -hmm. or do we see it really as just a different way of experiencing anxiety and pain and, and researchers on this have been quite divided some people think that we just misunderstand our feelings of anxiety as arousal. We label them arousal because we're not actually aware all the time what we're thinking, mm -hmm. what we're feeling. I know this is something that, that yeah, you know, um, that you've written about, that we can not be aware of what we're actually feeling. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we can interpret what we feel as arousal when actually it's something else. And sometimes it can be the other way around, that when we feel aroused, we might interpret that as actually meaning something else. So it's a complicated area. I, uh, I, I mean, I make gags all the time as a lot of blokes do about the amount that I used to, you know, masturbate when I was a, when I was an adolescent, right? But I must admit, I have, you know, I have I have thought about how when I was like in a, you know, so I don't know, thirteen and whatever. Like I was, uh, I used to, I've written about how I used to eat a lot. I used to binge eat. I used to be in the house on my own and I'd be really bored and lonely. And often looking back, I now realise I was, I was sort of pretty miserable and sometimes quite scared being in, in my house on, on my own, you know, like getting used to being in the house on your own when you're about 12 and you, you, you first left a, alone maybe for a day or whatever. Mm. And, uh, and I've often linked my sort of, um, uh, habit of like just sitting in front of the telly like almost like incessantly like in a frenzy eating things like chocolate biscuits and stuff right and I link that to the fact that later in life I became an alcoholic and a drug addict right because it was the same sort of thing I realized that now but you know I look back and I think well that was around the time that was your wanking heyday 12 13 14 where you're just at it the whole time and you look back and you joke with other lads and go oh my god you're obsessed with it when you first discover it but in many ways it's like well I didn't have access to to drugs and really have much access to alcohol when I was that age. But there was one freeway in which you could sort of distract yourself very easily from every all the other feelings. So listening to you talk now, I'm thinking, yeah, whether it was food or wanking, it was all the same as drinking or drugs later in life, right? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the wanking is, again, a really fascinating thing that people are often embarrassed to talk about. 
And yet it seems so important to understand how people manage to do it because it's quite quite a feat to be able to do it, to make a story in your head coincide with an orgasm. And, and yeah. some, some psychologists have said that that's as important a milestone in your development as learning how to write or learning how to tie your shoelaces, you know, which are both quite yeah. a big deal. How can you construct a story in your head where you actually come at the same moment as you do in the story the story reaches its conclusion yeah yeah, yeah. and that, that, that that is a kind of amazing cognitive achievement mm. which deserves further study so there's a lot of um you know uh fascinating stuff it's like narrative on. it's like narrative mastery isn't it yeah 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 exactly <laughs> but it, but you could say that when kids learn how to masturbate that mm. also will allow them to be able to read to read books because to That's enter amazing. into a fictional world if you read a novel, yeah. you, you often, you know, you imagine yourself in the place of a character. Now, how do we learn to do that? Now, some people have argued that we learn that through learning how to masturbate. Yeah. We learn how to be someone else or to how to occupy a place in a story. So, you know, it is, I think, a big cognitive milestone. Well, maybe there's, people, maybe there's people who are more skilled at masturbation. Maybe people who have uh, more vivid imaginations or better, you know, perhaps writers, for example, are more skilled at it. I'm sure I heard you somewhere say that, you know, um, some of the stuff you unearthed from speaking to sex therapists is that, a, you know, a surprisingly large number of people admit to not actually having an orgasm when they masturbate. Maybe they can't get the narrative right in their head. That's what Freud said. Freud said the real problem about masturbating is knowing how to do it well. <laughs> but with with your um you know your your memories of masturbating and then going to the fridge and getting your cookies <laughs> yeah. I mean the the big question now is um I don't know if you've seen the TV ads for the new LG fridge no where where you touch the fridge and the door of the fridge becomes transparent and you can suddenly see what's inside oh my god now, this is either the, the best idea that's ever occurred to a fridge engineer <laughs> or or it's a bad idea. It's either going to be huge or it's going to fail. Because when most people go to the fridge, they open it not because they're hungry, but because they, they want an idea. They want some something yeah. to stimulate them from the outside. A lot of people will go to the fridge maybe like 100 times in a day, mm. just open the door, look inside, then close the door. Mm. So the big question is now, you know, is it going to be enough just to see through the door? <laughs> well, it's less it. fun it's less fun because there's a sort of a nice surprise isn't yeah. there to open exactly. the yeah, yeah. door so, so let's say we, we could predict that it's not going to work but anyway let's see yeah you do, wow. a podcast, do a podcast a year about whether the new LG fridge has failed or not yeah absolutely right I mean I'm right there for a fridge podcast definitely <laughs> uh, especially if we can somehow link it to our uh, sexual habits or tastes as well what um you know, you you you've got a a, a well deserved reputation, Darian, for writing about you know sometimes quite uh com- well often very complex psychoanalytical ideas in a very uh, you know accessible uh, accessible way. You know, your new book is it ever just sex? I suppose you know some people might some people are going to be really drawn to it and it, you know generally speaking i'd say it's a great idea to have the word sex in any title of a book 
But of course, other people might find that intimidating or they might think it's not for them. They don't have an issue with sex. So what what would you say to people about what this book might help them understand? Well, I hope it'll make people think more, ask more questions about what we're thinking about when we think about sex and what we're doing when we're actually doing sex. Because mm. it seems, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on there which needs to be thought about more, especially, you know, in, in you know, the current world where all the stuff is supposed to be so transparent and obvious and available and accessible. Mm. And yet, you know, we see, you know, every minute of the day, the the pain and heartache that problems in sex, that misadventures, that failed romances, yeah. that all these things cause. So it's about trying to get a perspective on what place sex has in our physical and in our mental lives. And really just to get people thinking more and to ask us some questions about, you know, what's going on. My last thought about that is with, with other areas of mental health, what I believe has really helped is that it's become so much more of a normalized conversation to, to talk to people, even people sometimes, you, you know, you don't even know particularly well, you know, even in comparison to 10 years ago, there might be, you might feel able to sort of reference your own sense of anxiety or yeah. reference the period that you might have suffered of, of depression quite early on in a conversation and you might get something back from that person and an exchange has happened which you might find useful because exchanges of experiences are just so helpful and powerful sex conversations i would say we're nowhere near that you know i mean sex conversations still the, the only environment outside i guess of my marriage in which you can talk about sex in a sort of fairly open way for me would be sometimes although less so now I'm older but you know amongst a bunch of blokes male friends but mm -hmm. but that kind of conversation is going to be largely contrived it's going to be full of lies and bullshit and posturing because that's how guys often communicate about sex mm -hmm. and uh and even if you are being honest it's very it you won't often get a a, a wide a diverse range of experiences or or you know to to share with one another uh sexual conversations i mean i can't imagine having a sexual conversation that is open and honest with uh work colleagues relatives uh fr female friends in particular <laughs> because with female friends it would be there would always be a connotation to that i would i would think i yeah. would I would personally think culturally, if you start talking to a platonic friend who is a female about sex, sexual experience, there will be a, an inference there that you, that you know, you're trying to, you know, start something. You're trying yeah, to. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, the, the, that's the irony because it's been recognised for a long time that talking about sex in itself has a sexual quality. It does. So, but one of the great things today is that there are a lot of resources on the internet where people mm. can go learn about things, read about things, you know, have some kind of engagement with other people that doesn't necessarily involve a one-to-one -one in person conversation, which might, you know, feel too threatening or too invasive for the person. Mm. So, you know, there, there are plenty of resources out there, but I think, you know, there will always be that quality of sexualization when people talk about sex. I think it's inevitable.
Yeah. So, but you're saying it doesn't really matter if we don't. We, it's not like you're saying it would be good if we all work towards it. Because I'm not. I'm yeah, not sure. No, no. I mean, I'm a pretty open bloke, but I'm not sure I can envisage myself ever arriving at that yeah, stage. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not trying to encourage that. <laughs> right, Darian, um, I really appreciate your time. It's absolutely fascinating yeah, talking great to, to talk you, to you. And, and a real privilege. And the book's out now. I will put a link to it in the show notes with this podcast. It's called "Is It Ever Just Sex?" and it's wonderful. Darian, thanks so much. Great. Thank you so much. Bye, Sam. Take care. That was Darian Leader, one of the country's most well-respected psychoanalysts, and a good bloke too, with some thoughts on hanky panky that will no doubt have got you thinking. They did me. You can find a link to buy his book, Is It Ever Just Sex?, in the show notes for this episode. Thanks for listening as always, and please remember to subscribe to The Reset if you don't already at samdelaney.substack.com. Until next time, gang, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.